Hi, everybody. It's Megan. I'm so wildly excited about this episode of Grief is My Side Hustle. My guest today is Mary Frances O'Connor, PhD. She's an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona, where she directs grief, loss, and social stress, the Glass Lab, which investigates the effects of grief on the brain and the body. She's written this extraordinary book, The Grieving Brain. I reached out to her immediately. I read it twice the first day I got it after pre-ordering it. And the book is just so accessible. She was incredibly generous and said an immediate yes, even though she's on this wild press circuit with interviewers who are far more sophisticated than I am. I hope you enjoy this episode. I really encourage you to Google her and listen to the many conversations that she's had about this. You're just going to learn something each time. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your overly enthusiastic host, Megan Reardon-Jarvis. I am here today with Dr. Mary Frances O'Connor, who has written, I'm not exaggerating when I say, my favorite most important book that I have read. I read it twice. I ended it and then I read it again. It's dog-eared. It's gorgeous. The Grieving Brain. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's so lovely to be here, Megan. Well, I hope so. I, I almost am talking too fast because I want you to tell everyone about your book, about the work. I want you to tell everyone everything you know, because I feel as though we were just talk, talking off mic a second ago, that really this book is the book that intersects the science and the experience of grief and loss in a way that makes it really tangible and easy to engage with in a way that I have yet to find another book. Oh, I'm so glad that was definitely the goal. Yeah. Well, and you had to have been writing it before COVID even really got going, right? That's exactly right. In fact, it was only, I think there's only a sentence in the book about COVID really, because it was the very last edits that were going in when I was able to slip that in. But of course, because grief is so universal, I think so many of the things that I was writing about really apply to such a large number of people right now. So it's prescient in that unfortunate way. And yeah. You know, again, if folks are listening to this and they're trying to find a clinical book versus a memoir, which everyone knows how much I love memoir, this really is the one to put in hand. Can you just tell people how you come into the world of grief and loss, which I feel like that's a loaded question because I know you have multiple doors, but just how did, how did you find yourself here doing this work? Yeah, it's a kind of, as you say, multiple doors. That's actually a great way to put it. You know, when my when I was 13, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer. And really a lot of this has been, she lived for 13 years, but was never really supposed to. And so there was a lot of grief along the way. But what that really meant for me was I was always trying to understand her, to understand her experience and you know, on some level to help her. And when I was then in graduate school, for clinical psychology, it meant that I was able to sit with people who are grieving. Like, I don't mind if you cry uncontrollably kind of, and it turns out that's not very common. And, and so it enabled me to do interviews with people and really think deeply, not just about sort of what does grief feel like, but why and how is the brain, you know, involved in that? So 
then as I continued on and, and started doing more with neuroscience, doing uh, functional magnetic resonance imaging scanning of people's brains, it was still important to me to do the clinical interview as well, right? You can't really get one, you can't get the brain without the mind, it turns out. And so sort of for all of those reasons, I ended up really sticking with grief. I felt there was a real need to understand the science better. Mm, I love that. I, I have lots of experience anecdotally all the way back to childhood as well with grief. The science is the thing that helps me sleep at night and makes yeah. me feel less crazy and yeah. less alone, mm-hmm. you know, to understand that bodies are actually across cultures yeah. kind of similar and that we can expect that they are going to respond with bodily, you know, reactions that are kind of similar. Tell us, tell us a little bit about the work that you, that you describe with the fMRIs and what you were looking for and what you found. Well, initially, to be perfectly honest, I had the revolutionary idea that you could study grief at all. <laughs> so, Absolutely. You know, people think of it as such an ephemeral thing. And honestly, my first study when I, you know, all scientific studies go to an ethics board, wherever they're being done at the university or, or institution. And people were on the ethics board were like, you can't talk to people about grief. That's just terrible. You know, how awful that you would bring that up. And I thought, well, good Lord, we talk about depression. We talk about suicide. We talk about, you know, trauma. How can we not talk about this? But that's sort of, you know, in the mid nineties where we were at. And fortunately, you know, that is not the case anymore. There are many rigorous studies being done on grief and grieving. And so really for me, it was this question about how, how does this look in the brain? How is this working in the brain? And from those initial, you know, very elementary kind of neuroimaging studies, one thing we really discovered was how complex grief really is. So you might imagine that when someone is looking at a photo of, of the person who has died, which is what we do in the scanner, they bring us photos, just like if you were showing someone a photo album and we scan them and, and put them on goggles so that people are looking at different photos through the scan. And as you might imagine, there are lots of areas related to memory that are activated in the brain, but also areas that we know are related to emotional pain and perspective taking, right? Taking the perspective of another person, but even things like regions of the brain that are involved in controlling your heart rate, things like that. So I think from that initial work, it was really just, wow, this is such a complex experience people are having. I can only imagine what that was like to sort of have the go ahead of, of being allowed to get curious. And I think, I think that's something that your book does really well. You say it multiple times, which is there's plenty that we don't know, but here's what we're circling and what you described, which is how the study takes place with the pictures. And again, you do a nice job of sort of saying, this is why it works. And these are the ways in which it might undermine itself in some, you know, Because again, we're not going to be able to test somebody at the moment that something happens. Let me ask you a really core question that I have, which, you know, maybe this podcast is all about this because when I was reading your book, this popped up for me. What I spend a lot of time doing as a trauma therapist is extrapolating 
the basic neuroscience that I know about, you know, how the amygdala enlarges and how it impacts the hippocampus and the hypothalamus. And I don't use those words with clients generally, but I do sure. sometimes on the podcast because I think it's comforting for people to hear this part is where your memory is. And this part is where your satiation is. There is a line in here and I couldn't find it fast enough about the amygdala mm. and that it didn't show up as being enlarged during the fMRIs. And I want to know about this because Mm -hmm. I may be giving people all the wrong information because what I walk them through is your brain learns when it is a slow death. It doesn't mean it's not traumatic, but the risk of your central nervous system being overwhelmed in by a traumatic death is larger. And I have always told people it's an amygdala reaction. It's a traumatic reaction. You're going to have this. So talk to me about that. Am I right? Am I wrong? (laughs) All of a sudden I thought, well, maybe this is because it's not the moment of trauma. They're looking at photos, but I know you understand my question. So I do absolutely. And I mean, it's a question I I have as well. And I don't think we have all the answers. I'll be honest, but I think about it this way. I think that grief and trauma can really be distinguished, at least, you know, in, in current clinical science, in the current clinical neuroscience, we kind of make a distinction around grief, having sort of sadness and yearning most of all at its core, right? Really wanting to things to be back the way they were or having your person back that really just desperate yearning which is very different from the feeling of fear and helplessness. This thing is happening and I have no control over it. And then kind of extrapolating that sort of a response we might say to, and now I I feel helpless in all these other situations in my life, right? That's sort of the, the downside of trauma. That's right. And I think what you're talking about, which again, I may have this sort of, but not exactly right. I often talk about, you know, the traumatic event having its traumatic response and then what it means to be traumatized, which is more how that trauma resides in the body and takes on meaning over time. The way that I've talked to clients for many years is that the same way people talk about COVID being a traumatic event, of course it is. That does not mean that the entire population is going to be traumatized. That's right. And so, you know, I mostly am working with people who are, have been traumatized by their loss, which, you know, generally means there's other unprocessed stuff, but being able to sort of walk folks through, there are real things that happen in the brain that are causing your memory loss Mm -hmm. that, you know, is likely going to be temporary and your inability to eat, which is likely going to be temporary. Yeah. You did some studying with folks who are strobe and shoot, which I'd love you to talk about. I mean, I thought I, you tucked that in there sort of at the end of the book and I was like, oh my gosh. And, and for listeners who don't already know, they're a, a team who talk about a modern grief theory. Thank goodness that there's modern grief theory. Yeah. Can you just maybe tell folks what they study and what they're talking about and how you overlapped with them? I just thought that was such a, a, a cool, small world, intentional teaming of people. 
Yeah. So they really came up with it's uh, Maggie and Hank. So they're they're a man and, and a when woman. When you know them well, <laughs> right? Exactly at the University of Utrecht in in the Netherlands, and they really were highlighting what we know now, as you describe it, the modern interpretation maybe of people's experience. And they describe it this way. They call it the dual process model because there's two sort of stressors that they describe bereaved people having to deal with. And on the one hand, there's loss stressors. And this is what we typically think of as grieving. All of those intense emotions that overwhelm and those intrusive thoughts and having to, you know, navigate this experience of absence of having a hole in your heart. But they also highlight, which was new at the time, the fact that bereaved people also have to deal with what they call restoration stressors. And I think of this as restoring a meaningful life. So there's also all the parts of sort of what am I doing now? And how is that impacted by the fact that the absence of this person is, is along with me? So maybe things I haven't had to do before I've had, I had an older gentleman tell me, you know, he hadn't bought clothes for himself in years. He didn't even know what size he was, you know, because that was just how they interacted in the world. They were a team, they were a pair and all of those, like, what am I going to do for retirement? I always had a plan for retirement. Now that's obviously not going to happen. How am I going to restore a meaningful life in the midst of all of that? But the genius, I think, of their model is that they talk about oscillation, this idea of sort of flexibility, that people who are grieving are sort of going back and forth between focusing on loss type stressors and focusing on restoration type stressors. You know, that can be in the course of a day, that could be in the course of an hour, certainly that could be a course of several months. So this flexibly going back and forth and also that there is also time you just spend in everyday life, right? You got to cook the eggs and, you know, get the bacon in the pan and write all the everyday life stuff as well. But I think that flexibility was a really novel way to think about grief at the time. What makes you such an obvious partner, I think it's on the back of your book, it says how grieving is a form of learning. And, you know, that gives me chills when I think about it. There, Everybody who grieves has their grief is like an ocean or a balloon or a jar or whatever. But a lot of what you talk about in your book is that the brain is a tool for learning and that the learning that it understands, it's like a predictive tool. It's based (laughs) on what it already knows. Yeah. And that really death, uh, the death of someone that you are attached to in this significant way, Mm -hmm. the brain has no predictive measure. Yeah, exactly. I think of it this way, you know, if I ask you right now, you know, where, where is your partner or, you know, when will you see your kids again? You probably have a reasonably good answer for that, right? We are constantly, because they are so important, our close loved ones, we know where they are and when we'll see them again. That's how the brain is tracking the important parts of our life. And the trouble with bereavement is that it's not that they're lost. It's that there is no map. 
It's that the map has been stolen and the brain doesn't have a way to compute that, right? It's, it says, if they're not in your presence, then go get them. That is the obvious response. And so for the brain to have to really come to terms with this idea that you can't predict when you're going to see them and where you're going to see them, but rather all of those habits that you're used to engaging in with this other person, they all have to be relearned. And that's just such a tremendous amount of work for the brain. Right. And the, you know, you have the emotional experience of not wanting to relearn them and the yearning and all the pain associated, but I love, I love how you just talked about that because, you know, people will say there's that moment in the morning where I forget that my husband died. And it's like, yeah, well, your brain is literally still trying to update the file. Yeah. At some point, everyone who has grieved over time will tell you your brain will learn. It just takes much longer. Yeah. And that's the part that I think is startling and comforting. I mean, my, when my dad died, it was probably eight months later, I was sitting with my mom and she said, can you just walk me through the timeline of his death again? Yeah. Because her brain, she was there. So it coded the information, but it was really comforting when I said to her, let me tell you why you're having trouble remembering this because my mom had a great memory and it was startling to her to, to discover. And so when we look at, and just sort of say as a basic tool, the brain is a predictive tool. It learns, it's going to take a minute for it to learn this. Mm -hmm. It takes a little bit of the crazy out. It does. Right. And then when we talk about the super highway of the vagus nerve, sending messages to the head and from the head back down into the body to sort of say, listen, everybody at the circus is really trying, yeah. <laughs> like we're trying to live without the tigers, but yeah. you know, at, at top of the hour, that's what we expect. You give us a, a good sort of feature between how to think about depression mm. and how to think about grief. Could you talk a little bit through that for us? Because that's a question I get a lot and I'll tell you, I push it off mm-hmm. because in my mind, it almost like doesn't matter, right? When people are coming into me for symptom relief, Mm -hmm. I'm using the same series of tools, regardless of how we diagnose it. But I, but I do think for some people, Mm -hmm. it's really brutal to feel like they're being diagnosed with depression on top of the idea that they're grieving. Yeah. And and for some people, it just also doesn't resonate, right? So we're sort of offering them something that doesn't match their experience that doesn't usually feel very comforting. And just as you say, of course, you can have depression after losing a loved one. That is also a route that some of us go. So when I think about the distinction, part of what I really think about is, again, this difference between the heart of depression is is very much sadness, but also sort of guilt and feeling unworthy and, and these sorts of things. And it's also very global. So it's like, you know, I've never done anything with my life, or I'm never going to meet the right person, or, you know, in sort of all these different aspects of my life, things are, things are not right. And it's, it's usually my fault, right? With grief, it's very focused on the person who's died, right? It's if this person were back, 
then my life would be fine. For the depressed person, there's almost a sense like it would be great to have them back, but it wouldn't solve everything. I'd still be this, you know, unlovable sort of unworthy person. So I, I think of yearning as really the heart of grief, which is just, which is just different and, and is very focused. Mm. And you talk a lot about yearning in the book, which again, is, was just a, a wonderful way of sort of framing what is the energy that people are suffering with. And again, from an energetic standpoint, the yearning is like a looking backward or mm. a trying to project forward with yeah. something that's not possible. It cannot be. That cannot be. You did say somewhere about people who have memory issues mm-hmm. also have difficulty projecting the forward part. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that as well? I, yeah. I found that fascinating and also something I think people mm. might relate, might, might be curious about. Yeah. You know, this was originally sort of a theory of a neuroscientist named Edward Tolving, but the gist of it is that there's a capacity that human beings have, which we can think of as time travel, right? We can travel back in time and remember how things were, but as human beings, we can also travel forward in time and imagine how things will be. And his insight was really that it's the time travel capacity, which is the same for both of those remembering and imagining aspects of of our capability. Well, something we know from the really detailed sort of laboratory work that we've done with bereaved people is many people have difficulty remembering memories that don't include the person who has now died. 100%. Isn't that interesting? And, And some of it is just, you know, you're thinking about the person so much that all those memories are really accessible, where memories without that person aren't as accessible. But if you think about what that means then for projecting into the future, when I try to, I gave the example of retirement earlier. So if I think about, okay, you know, in eight years when I'm going to retire, the plan, you know, was that my wife and I were going to go travel together. And now that's, now I have to imagine a different future and especially a future that does not include that person. This is a very challenging cognitive capacity for people who are having the same problem looking backward, right? It's hard to imagine a a situation without that person in it. But of course, in restoring a meaningful life, the reality is we are going to be spending time without them on this earthly plane. And we have to figure out how to do that in the future. So it takes effort and, you know, sometimes more effort for some than others, but that is still some, a task, a stress we have to deal with. One of the reasons I love it in the book is that a piece of work that I have found tends to be true with folks who are really struggling. Again, I'm a trauma therapist. So most of the people who come in to see me are, are not having a simple trajectory forward. And most often they have some other trauma in their life. Yeah. But one of the things that generally comes up is that they are stuck in the sensations, the body sensations, and the thoughts of their person as a dying or dead person. Yeah. 
right? And so when you're asking them to go to memory, they're spending, they're, they're imagining the last year of their father's life when he was ill. And that is the person. Yeah. And so from, and I, I use IFS and I use body work and a lot of imagination stuff, but generally what I'm doing is, and I'll have people bring in pictures, I'm bringing them past that yeah. traumatic memory mm-hmm. and into the idea of this person, you were with them for many, many more minutes of your life yeah. as an alive person. And that's why they're, the death is so painful, but it's really interesting to have the concept in here of somebody whose entire memory is focused mm-hmm. in that, that attachment space. Mm-hmm. So you can, you can bring them back to that, but to, to project forward into what we really do have to do, which is learn to carry the loss of our person. Yeah. That is a much harder imaginary task than yeah. really I had ever conceived of before. Yeah. Right. And, I and think, it bears yeah. my experience. My experience bears that to be true. Oh, that that's there are good. some people that are, they just really like, I can't, I can't imagine it. And, and historically I have thought, okay, there's some theory of mind stuff going on, but actually you've defined it and, and helped me think about that really differently. Yeah. I I think it is sort of important for therapy. One of the, you know, what we now call, um, what's been called complicated grief therapy for a long time developed by Kathy Shear at Columbia university. One of the things that they do is practicing revisiting memories, but also practicing trying new things, right? So the brain is going to learn. It just, that's how it's set up. It's going to do it, but it's only going to do it if it has experiences that it can encode. So it needs new experiences in order to even know, did I enjoy that? Right? So, you know, if you're having trouble imagining, well, I'm not going to enjoy anything that I do now. Well, that's okay. But go ahead and try a couple of things and then be present in that moment and see what it actually feels like. Right. So, you know, go on that road trip with your best friend and, and see what that's like. And, you know, in ways that it's good and bad and joyful and sorrowful and and the whole gamut, because just by being there, your brain is learning new things. It's making new memories and it's coming to understand the future differently. And you're inventing the possibility. So this podcast is called grief is my side hustle, but for a short period of time, it was called grieve is a verb yeah. because a lot of what I saw for people coming into the office was this like, okay, well, I cried at my yeah. father's funeral. Why do I still feel so bad? Yeah. And you know, the framework that I come to it with of which neuroscience is a part is being able to say there, you have a mother load of, of energy inside yeah. your system yeah. that you, you need to figure out how to build the muscles to carry. And I yeah. love what you just said about Kathy Shear's program, because she is defining the work, yes. right? Grief, yes. grief work. Mm-hmm. And it is work. I mean, it is an it effort is. and it's a verb and it takes courage. A lot of the, the belief that I can live forward. And again, yes. I think, I think of therapy as really sort of maybe providing like the oxygen of hope, I believe you can do this. I also yeah. appreciate and understand that every cell in your body is telling you, you can't, Yeah. but what it makes me think of just going back to the idea of depression versus grief, you know, when we're working with someone who's depressed 
and they don't want to get out of bed and their energy is really low. One of the things that drives me crazy is when we, when we flip open a magazine and it says like, oh, well, self-care are these things. Mm-hmm. And it's not really taking into consideration that if you're anxious, your energy is a different kind than if you're depressed. And then when you're depressed, we're trying to sort of elevate, right? Yeah. And activate like more right. We want more right brain stuff. And what I think happens when someone is depressed is people are concerned that they're spending too much time in their dorm rooms. Mm -hmm and don't really know how to engage. But maybe if they're loving and can appreciate depression are gonna continue to invite, maybe cajole, maybe bribe, Mm -hmm. say that it's good for them. And then because we're social creatures, it often can. What's interesting in grief is people see the same symptoms Mm -hmm. and they say, you call me when you feel better. Yeah, I won't bother you. That's right. And, you know, at the bottom of sort of the energetic experience, whether Mm -hmm. you call it depression or grief is Mm -hmm. the same, which is in order to invent a possibility of living forward with grief, I need new experiences. That's right. In order to have the courage to do that, I probably need some connection to people. Yeah. Some support. Yeah. So I find that really fascinating Mm -hmm. that we, because we're so awkward. We're so awkward. So awkward. I'm awkward. I mean, you know. I'm awkward. And I say that all, all the time as somebody yeah. who's had found loss in my life, who advocates about this all the time, but, and my listeners are all going to roll their eyes. Cause I talk about this all the time. I have two middle school kids. Each one of those kids came home and was like, mom, they're going to teach me about sex at school. You've got to sign this note. So I don't <laughs> learn about it. And I never sign the note because what yeah. I say is you need this core education because, yep. and you need it before it's happening to you yeah. because it's going to freak you out. Yeah. And yet we don't do that with grief and loss. When oh no. I came through social work school, I took a class on death and dying, which basically mm-hmm. involved, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, I'm mm-hmm. old and watching a really traumatic video of someone's yeah. body dying. And that was the sum total, yeah. sum total of the whole jam. I know I didn't have any education. So can you tell us about the class that you teach mm, where you sure. are now and, and what, what that's like for you? And yeah, I, it actually also your, your commentary about the middle schoolers reminds me of a story. I just have to share Oh, I love it. in my, in my small group of friends, our, our pod, you know, uh, <laughs> a new term that came yeah, with yeah. a pandemic a few years ago, there was a woman in the group and also a man in, in the group who both lost their mother within a fairly short period of time. And we spent quite a bit of time talking with them about it as a group. And I vividly remember we were sitting at, you know, a sort of restaurant bar one day and the woman's teenage son was with us mm. and she and, and the, and the guy were talking about their experience and, you know, they weren't bawling or anything, but they were talking about it. And her son said to her mom, this is so depressing. Let's talk about something else. And she turned to him and in the most loving way, she said, you know, this is a really important topic and it's really helpful to him and and I to talk about this. So it's okay. We can stick with this topic a little longer. And I just loved that, right? Like teaching him it is so unpleasant and you can bear it, you know? That is, what a gorgeous Isn't that example. just remarkable? 
Well, yeah, because I think, you know, again, I think we hide behind the cloak of awkwardness. Yep. We hide behind uncomfortable and we're not 14 years old. Exactly. And you know what, the reason I use that example is I'm like, you know, also sex is really awkward when you start down that road, but totally stop. No, don't say like, sorry, that was awkward for you. Don't do it again. (laughs) Call them again in a few weeks. (laughs) What we say is like, just move through the awkward. And a lot of what I also, you know, try to frame is kind of like, you know, it's losing someone really is like a developmental process. And there are, there are ways in which that can feel, you know, like somebody who gets their period early, like mm-hmm. very developmentally out of step with That's your right. peers, mm-hmm. but, but we're all going to do it. You know, yep. we're all going to be a griever at some point Yeah, and being able to show up, not with your, just your personal experience. Yeah. Cause that's yeah. where we start throwing elbows and stepping on feet. That's is, right. You know, I say to you, like, I don't know, Jesus is carrying your grandmother in his arms. Right. And you're like, lady, what are you talking about? Why would yeah. you talk to me? And I think our response as a field in general is to kind of like make these lists of what to do and what not right. to do. And, yeah. and you talk about this in your book, which I love, which is that is helping zero people. Yeah. There's no recipe. What no. we really need to do is coach people to find their own way as right. a leader. Yeah. And as a supporter. So, you know, people, I had a friend one time who was like, yeah, I'm making this lasagna for the neighbors. They lost, you know, their dog. And I was like, what are you doing making the lasagna? You're a worse cook than I am. <laughs> but, oh, well, you know, that was, that was what they told me to do. And I was like, yeah. that's how grief works. You don't yeah. make a lasagna. You do what is authentic to you. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And I think that part of the reason that we feel so awkward is that we have the wrong goal. So, uh, you know, when you are grief adjacent, so to speak, right, you sort of feel like my job is to cheer them up, right? They feel so awful. And my job is to make them feel better. And that's not your job. It's and it's just not possible, right? Which makes them feel worse. And you feel worse because you failed. Your job is to witness what they're experiencing and to stay with them or give them space depending on what they need and what they want. But by going into their space and, and saying, I'm here, we can sit and listen to music. We can go for a drive. We can talk about it. Or I'll be back tomorrow, right? Like if you want to spend time on your own, I totally get that. And I'll be back tomorrow, right? That's the sort of just witnessing whatever, wherever they are at the moment. I talk to people who are supporting grievers as the warmer, colder game, which I don't know if you ever played that as a kid, but it's, you know, you hide something in the house and then you, somebody has got to find it and you say warmer, colder, which that is often with people I don't know that well. I say, I'm sending you love. Yeah. And if this feels good, yeah. there's more. Yeah. And I can come closer. Yeah. And it can feel warmer. Or if this is enough, you just let me know that this is enough. Yeah. That's and right. it's not them teaching me because I yeah. think like anything where you are in the pain, whether it's mm-hmm. racism or grief or, you know, your job is not to teach somebody else how to do it. Mm-mm. But if you want to be in connection with people, you do have to respond to what the connection feels like. Yeah. And so again, my fantasy is that there is a class that teaches not only here sort of the basics of what the body does neuroscience wise and physically, this is, these are very normal things like 
puberty mm-hmm. and we all have to grow our capacity to grieve yeah. and what that looks like energetically might be things that you do that are creative or full of energy, like exercising or singing yeah. or dancing or planting or cooking or whatever that is grief work that there is an aspect in becoming a griever that is absolutely all alone because each person grieves and that's not a problem. That's the truth. And anyone who says you're not alone is trying to make you feel better and that's okay, but you will grieve alone and together, right? There will be, but it's not a problem that you feel that way. And just like running a marathon, you're going to run your own race. And just like becoming a parent or getting married or moving to another city, you're going to lose some friends. Yeah, it's true. And I think there's so much pain around that loss of friendship. And when I say this in in every developmental stage in your whole life, Mm -hmm. when you went from preschool to kindergarten and you switched schools, when you went to middle school, when you went to, when you changed synagogues, when you moved six houses down the street, relationships shift. Yeah. And that that's natural and okay. Yeah. And also painful, like also a secondary loss and a secondary grief. That's my fantasy around the class. Will you tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about what your class looks like and and how people are responding to that? And can I take it? (laughs) The class, uh, I teach most falls, fall semester, and it's 150 students. And when I say that, people think that's just weird, but it's very discussion-based. I'm just, I really love their experience and and getting into why the things I'm teaching them are actually relevant to their day-to-day life. And, you know, I think for most of them, they hear the word dead and death more than they've ever heard possibly in their entire life, (laughs) you know, a few weeks. In the class. (laughs) But... The thing I am constantly amazed by, so I've been teaching this course since 1999, actually. And I'm so happy to hear that. (laughs) What I'm always fascinated by is there is always a large proportion of the class who have experienced real grief, real, really difficult grieving experiences. And you know, initially I would say, how many of you know someone who has died by suicide? And, you know, there'd be a few hands and now it's a third of the class, you know, and these are their friends, right? Their classmates, but also who have, you know, cared for parents and grandparents who were dying. And so, you know, young people have way more experience often than I think we give them credit for. Absolutely. That's, and also, So, you know, again, something you write about in your book, which I was like, oh, thank you for saying this. When I was an early therapist and I forget the word for it. So you're going to have to fill it in for me. The very first session that I sat down with was with a teenager who was completely bereft because the R&B singer Aaliyah had just died. Yeah. And I was like, is she your cousin? What is happening happening right now? And yet that phenomenon of people feeling profound loss over a public figure is an absolute real thing. And I think the grief adjacency Mm -hmm. in that young adult period, people Mm -hmm. being impacted by things that are maybe to the left of them or to the right Mm -hmm. of them as more of their own, to me feels like it is larger maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And they, the suicide, suicidality is an, there's just no question that that has epidemic dramatically. Yeah. which is terrifying. And yeah. again, just a reminder that it behooves no one for us not to be able to yeah. 
talk to the population that's being. That's right. And and my goal in the class is really, I sort of have two goals in the class. The first one is that they fill out an advanced directive either for themselves or with their parents. And so we do a lot of practicing what that would look like and why you would do it and how you would talk about it. And and then they write sort of reflective essays along the way of what the experience is like for them. So talk about sort of encouraging them to have new experiences. This is very new for many of them. Yeah. And the other one is, can you really talk to someone if you are worried that they're thinking about hurting themselves? What would you do? And and how would you go about that? And I, you know, my feeling is there's all these theories and facts and so forth. And it's great if you can learn those. But if you have those two experiences, the class has been a success, you know. That's amazing. Well, one thing you talk about in the class is that it's, you know, you're having these discussions and you're really letting the young folks know that there is no advice. You have no advice to give a griever. That's not what we're here for. And I think you would say this and I would say this, that's also not what we're as grief experts here for. It's not to give advice, although concrete suggestions we may have every once in a while. Well, I sometimes say, you know, we may be the expert on grief, but anyone is the expert on your own grief, right? We can look at it. We can look at the patterns we've seen and, and give you new lenses, right. To sort of look through, but you're still having to look at your own grief experience with that information. And I think it's like anything else, you know, I can have impressions about what's going on for someone, but they walk out of my office and still live their own life. It's that real cake quote of like living your life into your own answer. Yeah. And For some people, I may want them to have more social connection in their grief Mm -hmm. than they do. Or I may believe that it would be good for them to reach out to extended family and they have their own wisdom about that. And, you know, that to me is also a fascinating thing about grief and loss is that people often come in. I often get referrals like in the first three months of loss and that, you know, I don't need to tell you this. Those are not usually very fruitful sessions because it's too new and too fresh, but it is not uncommon for someone to come in after 10 years and be ready. And I think historically in the therapeutic environment, we would say, oh, they've been denying their grief. And they, and I really work to reframe and say, you had the wisdom of knowing when you were ready and it's now, Yeah, you know, there's, there's nothing that we, you know, nothing is too late and you haven't created a problem for yourself. And of course that was the way you managed. And those were the tools that you had. We're going to increase those tools. Now the, the part that I think is fascinating about the work with the brain is that element of when when the phrase I use with my clients is jacked up, when your brain is jacked up, having the curiosity that is required and the courage that is required to become something else, a new iteration and version of yourself is really a challenge. And so having folks who can sit with you Maybe one of those people is a therapist, but maybe not, you know, That's right. I, I, I don't think therapy is required in grief. I, I agree. More support. So mm-hmm. when people, there are some statistics out there that are sort of like, no, you know, 60% of people said they were fine grieving the way that they were. I don't know if I totally trust that. I feel like when something happens that is expected, unexpected, new, a new element to your life, you know, 
if I had two other kids come over to my house that I needed to cook dinner for, I might need a little bit of help. Mm-hmm. I feel like with grief and loss, people usually need a little bit of help, a little more support, a little bit of time off, a little bit of a break, more understanding. Yeah. yeah. Wider birth. But it is true that, you know, the research shows that most of us are resilient. So we need support, but we are really resilient. And I think this was a surprise when this research first came out, because as clinicians, we see the help seeking that's right. People, right? So of course it makes sense that we think that that's what grief looks like. But when we've done sort of randomly sampled studies, so the study out of University of Michigan where they interviewed couples and then they followed them for 10 years. And when one of the one member of the couple passed away, they re-interviewed the other member. And it yeah. meant that they had all this rich data about what their life was like before there was grief. And so they could look at sort of what was impacting things. And they discovered that people were actually really quite resilient. Now that doesn't mean that they didn't feel grief and it doesn't mean they didn't feel suffering and it doesn't mean they didn't reach out to their friends, but whatever it was that they did have in their environment as resource was enough for them to restore a life that was working for them which is an incredibly hopeful thing to say to people. There is this subset of the population that feels like if they are grieving past the three weeks that their job (laughs) lets them have, that they have somehow failed at grief and loss, which again, you know, I'm so steeped in this work. I forget that that's, you know, people come in and I'm like, your uncle said, what do you like? We need to run him over with a car. That is not okay. (laughs) But in general, there is still sort of an ethos that if you are grieving, that is your problem instead of totally and completely appropriate life response. Yes this terrible thing that happened. And so the more we're able to sort of talk about that, and I think the more we're able to say a little bit about the science mm-hmm. and of the body and the brain, sort of the extraordinary opportunity is that we get to shift the culture a little bit. Before yeah. I let you go, I would love for you to talk about rumination a little mm. bit. You spend a good bit of time talking about this in your book. And I have to say my, my 14 year old daughter has OCD and that's not something I specialize in, although I understand more than the average bear. And I was fascinated to learn that the ruminations connected to OCD are almost like random, Mm -hmm. that they don't come from the same way that ruminations in PTSD come. Can you talk a little bit about maybe even just describe what a rumination is and the mm-hmm. role that it plays in grief so that everybody who's listening can hear how unbelievably normal it is and yeah. maybe expected. Yeah. So when I think about rumination, you know, it can come in lots of flavors, I like to say, but these are the thoughts that just keep running through your head. And even when, you know, they creep up on you, you, when you get into bed at night, when you're stopped at a red light, you know, they just keep rolling through your head and it can be, you know, there's a flavor of them, which is sort of the would have, could have, should have. So the way that, you know, if only I would have gotten them to the hospital sooner, if only they could have, you know, known that the train was going to be late, you you know, right. There are an infinite number of those. And the trouble with rumination, whether it's that flavor or, you know, there are, there are others as well, including is my grief normal, right? That can be something that just continually rolls through your head. Yeah. The trouble with all of those is there's no answer. 
there is there are an infinite number of these possibilities and there is no answer to them and my experience is that when we are in that space of thinking in that way for example with the would have could have should have you know the outcome of each of those virtual realities you're spinning out in your head the outcome of each of them is and then my loved one didn't die right That's but exactly of course right right? The reality is that they did die. And so spending time in these ruminations can really take us out of the present moment. It can take us out of imagining what life can be like or feeling what life is like, even when that includes painful feelings. Because only when we're in the present moment can we also feel joyful feelings or even bittersweet feelings, right? And so that rumination, there's a lot of different ways that we can respond to it. It is totally natural. And especially early on, we know it is very, very common. It is the most common thing. And then over time, for most people, those thoughts become less intense, they become less frequent and less bothersome, right? So it doesn't mean you never have them again, but they don't interfere as much. And we can react to them in lots of different ways. Honestly, one of the ways is just thinking to oneself, ah, <laughs> I recognize these, you're Absolutely. back. Absolutely. Right? And just sort of accepting it's going to happen. I like the way you described it. And for people listening who know my story, know that the reason that I knew that I had PTSD is that my ruminations got worse and more intense. They were relentless by the time I took myself in. And I knew that if they were simple ruminations, that they would be alleviating and loosening and they were doubling, tripling down. My core rumination was that it was my fault. You know, that was the thought. It's my fault that she died. And I would check, you know, oh, is it because she didn't take this medication? And no, that wasn't why. So you would think that my mind would loosen and say, okay, you can relax. No, it just jumps to another one. And, And something that you talk about in the book, which I love is you say, you know, the ruminations ultimately are really a distraction and in parts work and IFS work. That's what we talk about is we have these little protectors. One of them is this thought that can walk you around a tree for the rest of your life. All the ways in which you could have saved your mother from dying and that it's doing that because the other job is to live without your mother. Yeah. Is far harder and your yeah. brain has no capacity to even really understand that you could do that, particularly yeah. in fresh loss. But yeah. as you pointed out, as your brain learns, yeah, takes in the information and updates, this person is not here. You have lived a day without her. You have lived 10 mm-hmm. days without her. Yeah. All of that should, when it's yeah. not traumatic, right. feel yeah. more possible, yes. which is you know, just the definition. And I think, I think ruminations for people are the things that they keep kind of secret. Yes. They know, often. You know, they know that it's not logical thinking. And so yep. they don't want to say it out loud. And so part mm-hmm. of the reason I wanted to ask you about it is just for the grievers to hear yeah. you're right. Part of it is really not logical. Yep. And also it's like standard grief materials. Yes, yes, it really is. And I'm so glad that you've shared that, that, you know, if they are getting considerably worse, so grief comes and goes as well, right? So it's not like, you know, a day of it being worse or even two days of it being worse or around the holidays, it's worse. Those are all 
pretty normal, honestly. But if it is, you know, getting more and more invasive in your life and preventing things, you're absolutely right. Then that's a different beast. It's a distinct thing to be someone who studies trauma, interested Mm -hmm. in trauma, and then becomes traumatized. The way that I've described it to folks is it's like hitting a Tibetan singing bowl Mm. that gets louder instead of quieter. And that's that's just enough. If your symptoms, you know, of course your body's going to ring like a bell that's going to happen for days, but if it starts to get louder and you know, what was interesting for me is I knew all the interventions and the people to call and that still wasn't enough, which is again, a humbling reminder that we are physical beings and not our bodies are not necessarily at our will or our education, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting thing. Okay. I really am going to let you go. Do you have an action item that you like to advocate for in terms of grieving as sort of that verb, either from your own experience, you, I don't know, got into yoga Mm -hmm. or from the science behind it. But I find that people who are in the world of grief and loss, myself included, sort of have a a favorite, even though we say it's unique to everybody, Mm -hmm. there's like a lead off, you know, Mm -hmm. a lead batter that we say, try this, start with this. Mm. I walk a lot or walked a lot. And I hear that from a lot of people. It actually comes up in the book in subtle ways. A few different times I describe walking as I'm trying to sort of cope with whatever grief I have in that moment. For me, it is, it's rhythmic. You're moving through the world. It matches my energy level. So I often walk very fast when I'm feeling very panicky and anxious and upset. So that is something that, that I did a lot. I love that. I wrote, I started writing yes. and, and it's interesting because what I have found again, my, you know, anecdotal evidence of 20 years, non-scientific is that people often return to something that they once loved that yes. falls into sort of a creative category that yeah. fell off in middle school. Yeah. So they pick up an instrument or oh, an it was art comforting. Yeah. yeah. Or they find an energetic, mm-hmm. you know, they start running, they start rowing, yeah. they start they play volleyball. And in both of those, I think about Wim Hof, like in both of those things, the idea of being able to allow your left brain, right brain balance. Mm -hmm. I am just really struck by how wired we seem to be to really want to heal no matter what. That's right. I I take a lot of comfort in that. And for people that are really struggling, I also have a menu Mm -hmm. of things. And I say, here are all the people and here's what they said. Yep. So you can take a look and these are, and I'll put you on my menu with walking and there say, this is something that Mary Frances says is a great technique. <laughs> I honestly, this was such a thrill for me. I'm totally serious that if I can take your class in the fall, I know that I would love to take it. It is my fantasy that it would be a college level requirement and right now it's what I do. I do big lectures in companies where Perfect. I'm staff, you Wonderful. know, because I believe in capitalism and, mm-hmm. you know, companies want their company, you know, to work well. Yeah. So those folks are, God love them mm-hmm. responding to the idea yeah, that we need to be right. increasing education. I'm going to be following you and paying attention to everything that you do. Congratulations on the Thank attention you. that this work is getting. I just really feel like it is an incredibly important piece. It's just a gift to us at this time. And I'm going to be posting about it and yelling about it and shouting about it. And I just am really grateful that you had this hour for us today. 
Thank you. Thank you, Megan. I really appreciate taking the time. Okay. Take good care. I hope we stay in touch. Thanks. Bye-bye.